What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Do you know why you're here? Because you are interested in an interesting political conversation that is precisely that, a conversation. It is not edited and chopped up into extremely small morsels. It is a full conversation. It runs nearly an hour, and we cover lots of different topics. It is not, as you well know, an interrogation. It's a show that runs on more than 75 radio stations around the country. It's on CBSN, our digital streaming platform. It's on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and, of course, on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our guest this week, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Senator, it's great to see you. Great to have you with us. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show. So, folks, let me tell you how this works. Sometimes you book a guest and they say, hey, I've got a legislative priority. And the interviewer says, yeah, 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 we'll get to that. And they talk about a bunch of other things. That's not how we're going to do it this week. This week we're going to talk about the legislative priority that the senator's staff talked to us most aggressively about. And the reason we're going to do that is we're recording this on Thursday, November 12th. Yesterday was Veterans Day. You may have seen articles online. You may have seen public service announcements on your local television. You might have even heard a politician say something about Veterans Day. Well, we're going to get into an issue right now that strikes me as at the center of what it means to care for veterans in this country. It's about something you might not have ever heard of before. It's called a burn pit. And it's central to an issue that's related to veterans' health for those who served in Afghanistan and Iraq. And if you know anything in this country about veterans and their pursuit of compensation for Agent Orange exposure during Vietnam, burn pits will sound familiar to you. And I'm going to set it up and leave it right there. Senator, why is this an issue? What is a burn pit and what do you want to be done? Well, right now we have um, thousands of members of our military who have served abroad in dozens of countries where there were literally open areas, pits where they threw garbage in of all sorts, from electronics to clothing to building materials. And then they lit it on fire with jet fuel. And we know the combination of those things when burned creates such intense toxins that when they are breathed and inhaled, it creates cancer and other diseases because that's what was burned on 9-11. When the jets hit the towers, the jet fuel lit the towers on fire and everything burned. And so unfortunately, a lot of our service members since the global war on terror began have been exposed. Um, About 200,000 people have already registered under burn pits registrations, but very few have ever gotten compensated. 
So our goal is to make it very easy that if you served abroad and you're exposed to a burn pit and you're sick, that you are covered, a presumptive covered, you know, to be covered presumptively um, is the goal of this legislation. And it will make it much easier for thousands, hundreds of thousands of veterans. They estimate that uh, over 3.5 million service members were exposed to burn pits. So we want to make sure that all of them get the health care that they've earned by serving. As I understand, these burn pits were constructed by contractors. Yes, and they were constructed in countries all over the world, from Iraq to Afghanistan to Pakistan to countries throughout Africa uh, and across the Middle East. And so really, um, in this country, burn pits are illegal. Um, the military has now figured out that they've done serious harm, so they now prohibit creating new burn pits. But a lot of damage has already been done. And when people go to the VA for help, they are denied. It's also my understanding that the principal contractors for the U.S. government who created the burn pits after a while discovered their dangerous effects, took their employees out, and then hired employees from other countries uh, essentially creating an exploitive and semi-dangerous condition for them, but preserving their own employees because they knew these were risky places. Is that true? I don't know. I don't know much about how the contractors did their jobs here. I just know that our service members lived and breathed uh, the air around these burn pits. And there's other countries also that uh, were built, uh, our, our bases or our, you know, tents were placed in areas that had huge amounts of toxic materials buried or stored there. So one place uh, called K2 is known for the amount of toxins that were in that location. Um, and it was um, Soviet era munitions were destroyed there. And so they have been exposed to serious, serious cancer causing elements. Is there any component of your legislation that would try to hold the contractors financially liable? Or is this strictly through the Veterans Administration and that process? This is strictly through the VA and it would cover all veterans and it would be a presumptive coverage. And what kind of illnesses are you most concerned about that you believe are prevalently tied to exposure to burn pits? Um, the ones that we know of so far are asthma, cancer of any type, uh, chronic bronchitis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, constructive bronchiolitis, obliterative bronchiolitis, emphysema, and several other types of diseases and cancers. And it's my understanding that those who were posted at bases where burn pits were nearby, it's not as if you had to stand over the burn pits to get this. If the wind shifted, it would come over base and you would be breathing it for some period of time. I'm also told that there is a kind of filmy residue that exists over base property if the wind shift and the burn pit smoke is there for any length of time. That seems like pretty constant exposure. It is. And when you just talk to a service member who served near a bird pit, they will tell you the stench was constantly in the air. And is this something, when you talk about presumptive, I think that's probably a magic word within the Veterans yep. Administration, and that if it's not presumptive, then there's this laborious and lengthy process to research, research, research. And a lot of Agent Orange veterans never got the compensation because by the time it was concluded, they were already dead. Correct. And so right now you have to prove that you, that there was a burn pit where you were stationed. And then you have to prove that the disease you have is caused by 
a burn pit and you have to prove what in the burn pit caused that disease, which is absurd. Uh, we know because of the 9-11 health bill that if you've been exposed to these toxins, that it causes horrible cancers and life-threatening illnesses. So we already have the epidemiology linking the 9-11 illnesses to 9-11, and it's the same materials. And it's the same legislative fight, is it not, practically? It is exactly the same legislative fight. And so it's very much like what we did with Agent Orange as well. I've been fighting for the past 10 years to make sure the Blue Water Navy veterans also get coverage from Agent Orange exposure. Um, so for example, if you were on an aircraft carrier and the Agent Orange leached from the shore, you would collect the water, you'd boil the water, which only intensified the amount of Agent Orange, and then you use that water to bathe and cook your food. So people on uh, aircraft carriers also were exposed to Agent Orange. So we just got that done last year. So these are long battles um, and it's outrageous because Again, these are men and women who give up everything for us, who sacrifice their lives for us, and the least we can do is cover their health care. Any Republican co-sponsors? In the House, we have some. We need some in the Senate. But I'm optimistic now that the election is behind us that there'll be several Republicans I can get. There's several versions of burn pits legislation. Mine's the only one that covers it presumptively. The others, you still have to, um, it's at the discretion of the VA. Uh, so it doesn't really move the ball forward. So this is the best piece, and I believe I can get Republicans to support it. Any idea how much it might cost? Um, you know, I don't know. The CBO will not give us a score yet, but it's the cost of war. And every time we decide we're going to war, these are the costs that have to be included and accepted because you can't nickel and dime our service members after the fact. This is what it actually costs to go to war. That is the voice of Senator Kirsten, Kirsten Gillibrand, great state of New York. She is our special guest this week. I wanted to spend the first segment talking about that because it's an issue that you may not be familiar with. I hope you're more familiar with now and keep it in mind. When you want to say thank you for your service, there's a way to make that actually real for people who serve near burn pits. More on the election just passed, the legislative agenda for President-elect Biden and other topics when we come back. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, great state of New York, is our special guest. Senator Gillibrand, uh, related to the conversation we just had about burn pits, the military, you said the election just passed. We'll get to that in a second. But there have been some changes in the hierarchy of the Pentagon at the civilian level since the election. Concern is not the word I'm interested in. Lots of people are concerned about things that are nominally interesting. Are you worried that there is a danger afoot because of the instability at the civilian leadership level of the Pentagon? No. Okay. I'm actually not. Um, I understand why people are concerned. Um, 
but President Trump continues to govern through chaos. That's what he does. He, he creates chaos. He creates instability. He um, wants uh, people to feel uneasy. And he, unfortunately, uh, has politicized the institutions in our government and in our democracy that haven't been politicized in the past. And he's doing that exactly with the armed services right now. I did not support Mark Esper. Uh, he's somebody who I do not agree with. He is against transgender troops. He's made it harder for women to serve in combat. Uh, he's not really done the things that I would have expected a Secretary of Defense to do. Um, I'm sure he would like to be seen as somebody who stands up to President Trump uh, because of the most recent incidents, but uh, he really is not that. So I'm less concerned than other people. Um, I do think our institutions will hold, uh, like it or not, to President Trump. Joe Biden won the election, and it doesn't matter how much shaking and screaming President Trump does, he will not be the president come January. And I believe that our institutions will hold and we will transition as quickly as possible. There will probably be many in my audience who will be happy to hear you say that. They either don't, they either know or I'm going to tell them something they will appreciate knowing. You still serve on the Armed Services Committee, do you not? Yes. Yes. So you're read in on this and your level of concern is ever so slightly heightened, but it's not something that you think the nation should be overly anxious about or even freaked out about, correct? Correct. Got it. Um, let's talk about the recently concluded election. You described it as kicking and screaming. Is there something more dire afoot with the delayed transition? Or is it just a matter of a couple of days and the president has to get his psyche in the right place and the nation just has to accept that? So I am a little, I am more concerned about the lack of a transition because what that does is it prohibits president-elect Biden from being able to receive top secret national security information. It prohibits him from being able to start the background checks for the 4,000 political appointees he's gonna to need to name over the next several months. It prohibits him from drawing down on the millions of dollars that are made available for this very purpose of transition so that the president-elect president and his personnel can begin to meet with the agencies. I'm specifically concerned about this because of the COVID epidemic. Uh, President-elect Biden needs to hit the ground running when he is inaugurated on January 20th, and he needs to be able to have a comprehensive plan in place for how he's going to address COVID. COVID is rising in every state right now. There are more and more hospitals that are full and unable to meet the needs of the communities that they serve. And so Joe Biden needs to be ready to take all of this on and to have a better solution than what we've seen out of President Trump. So I am concerned that the GSA is holding up the efficient and peaceful transition process um, when they should be allowing it to move forward. Now, it's a simple decision that the head of the GSA makes. And once she makes that decision, you can have a transition and president-elect can meet with all the agencies but absent that decision, there's nothing he can do because the money is not given to him. It is not drawn down. And to delay that decision because there's still a lawsuit or because there's still a vote count, never before have we de delayed that certification for those 
those types of political things. In fact, as soon as the election's called, it's routinely done. Which is exactly what happened in 2016, even though recounts were carried out in a couple of the close states, the transition had already begun. It's worth pointing that out. And when the president asked, as he did on Twitter this week, since when did the networks call the election? How about since 2016? Long before that, but in your case, they called it, you accepted it, your transition began, and you became the president-elect. That's just, Those are all just facts. Yep. yep. So... I don't want to over-dramatize this, but do you believe the lack of the cohesion of these two teams, the current White House Coronavirus Task Force and the one that the president-elect has already created, their inability to meet costs lives or will cost lives? I believe it will. And I'm very concerned about it because right now there are people uh, at HHS, there are people who are working for the CDC um, there are people who are under Homeland Security who are all working towards protecting populations from COVID and trying to guarantee testing and eventually vaccinations to be available to everyone. And without having the benefit of all the mistakes made to date and all of the things that they know are working and things that aren't working, in some respects, they're going to be reinventing the wheel. And that's problematic because that can put us behind. Um, I think they should be aligned already and they should be working hand in glove already. And this lack of the ascertainment, which is the decision point by the head of the GSA, is highly problematic. And just for those who are listening and may not know General Services Administration, that's what GSA stands for. That's the agency that has to ascertain and set this process all in motion. And it seems to me, Senator, I like your thoughts about this, that this most significant conversation that should be had and would be had if these two teams were working side by side is about the enormous logistical lift that distribution of a vaccine will require. This is going to be an an enormous task for this entire country, involving the federal government, state governments, and local governments, as well as hospitals and other healthcare entities. That we're not having those conversations and that days are being wasted strikes me as something that could be, if not just concerning, downright perilous come January, February, March, April. Correct. And the other thing I'm worried about is, you know, President Trump failed to use the Defense Production Act effectively, and so we don't have universal testing. We don't have rapid testing being produced here quickly enough so that every person can be rapidly tested before they go to school, for example, or before they go back to work. Uh, And it's impeding our ability to recover, and it's impeding our ability to do the contact tracing and stopping the virus in its tracks. So I need President-elect Biden to be able to have an assessment of does he need to use the Defense Production Act for any aspect of the production of testing and vaccination so that he can mobilize it immediately. Um, President Trump never used the power of the federal government effectively to take hold and to reduce the spread of COVID. But I hope our president-elect will do exactly that. But he needs to be able to have the authority to start having those conversations with his agencies and know what data has been created and what the lay of the land is. What are the prospects, if any, Senator Gillibrand, of a lame duck stimulus package for COVID-related spending? I believe we will pass a package. Um, I'm hoping that Mitch McConnell does not insist on another poison pill like he did the last time. There's a lot of bipartisan support for money for cities and states, for money for healthcare workers, money for food stamps, money for housing, money for um, 
unemployment insurance and money for small businesses. That's where the common ground is. And there's a lot of support. Um, unfortunately, last time Mitch put in a, a restriction on liability that was so over um, broad that it made everyone feel deeply uncomfortable. Um, since we already have examples of employers who set workers back to work without any protective equipment, shoulder to shoulder with other workers, just look at the meatpacking industry and how COVID just literally went through there like a fire. And we don't want to see that again. And we want to be able to hold employers who make poor decisions such as those, account we can hold them accountable. And so I'm hopeful that enough time has passed that Mitch McConnell has heard from his governor and his local electeds that even his own state is in desperate need so that we can have some common ground. That is the voice of New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, our special guest this week. More of our conversation about the pandemic, other issues, the election. What's the future of the progressive agenda under the new realities of a Senate minority or majority for Democrats? All that coming up. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to, watching, and most thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, great state of New York, is our special guest. Uh, Just continuing the conversation on a potential stimulus bill during the lame duck session. Do you think that's a December issue? Do you think it's possible at all to be resolved this month? Yes, I think it could be a December issue. Um, There's only maybe another week in session that they won't get it done. But December, possibly. Uh, And I think people need it. I mean, with the COVID cases rising, uh, people are going to get sick and they won't be able to work. And the need is just going to grow and grow and grow. And more industries will go out of business. Um, More restaurants won't be able to reopen because the COVID cases are going to be too hot. So they won't be able to let people inside. And as soon as we get to super cold weather, you're not going to be able to have outdoor dining. So you're just going to see massive unemployment. I mean, just the, the number in that industry alone, in the restaurants, the service industries, alone is millions of people without work and without an income. And so we really need that unemployment insurance and the PPP loans for the small businesses. So I think it's it, we're, we're reaching an urgent crisis. And you've teamed up with some high visibility chefs on that, have you not? Yes, yes. And they're so good because they understand um, what's at stake and, and have talked to restaurateurs around the country and created a platform of really good common sense ideas. Unfortunately, unless we have the Senate, that bill, we won't be able to pass it. Um, but we do have a shot with two races in Georgia. So I'm not giving up, <laughs> not giving up until it's over. So uh, a lot of people are gonna head down to Georgia, do a lot of get out the vote work, make sure every vote's counted. And I think a lot of people are optimistic that with hard work, it can be done. So about that, and about this election, I want you, for the benefit of my audience, to walk them through what you think the next couple, three weeks are going to look like. I'm not asking you to do a psychoanalysis of the president on a concession. That's not necessary. But states will certify, and then there will be a time in December in which things will be reported. From your vantage point, based on what you know so far, how would you project that out for my audience and say, watch this, watch that, that's how you know we're all safe and everything's going to work out? So I do believe Joe Biden will win. I think each state will begin to do their certifications. Georgia will do a recount. I believe it will end up exactly where it started with a Joe Biden victory. 
Um, it's just going to take time. President Trump is entitled to his lawsuits. He's entitled to that recount that he's called for in Georgia. They'll happen. And when they're concluded, there will be no le leg left to stand on. And so he doesn't have to concede. He doesn't have to be nice, but he will have to leave the Oval Office by January 20th. And I think at some point it will become clear even to him that there are no more avenues for recourse. His lawsuits do not seem to be um, based in fact or a strong legal analysis. So I think they will all fail. Do you have any conversations? Have you had any conversations with your Republican colleagues about this situation? Do you expect the dam to break within Republican ranks anytime soon? Meaning, Mr. President, the verdict is clear for the good sake of our country and the sake of stable governance. This process has to begin. I do. Um, and I, I read that, for example, James Langford said that if President-elect if President Biden isn't read in on foreign uh, intelligence and national security issues by Friday, that he would intervene. And so I do think most Republicans are giving President Trump a moment, a beat, but it's not going to last much longer. I've been very disappointed in Republicans' inability to stand up to President Trump and to speak honestly about what they think and what they feel. But I do believe at some point, uh, which should probably happen tomorrow or by Monday, there'll be a little more leadership in the Republican Party to say, when these reviews are concluded and when these elections are certified and when these lawsuits have been reviewed, that it is time to go. Do you think they're supportive or fearful? I think they're fearful of the president. I think he's extremely vindictive. And I think they're afraid of being um, opposite to their voters in some way. And so they're just afraid. And he is quite mean. So he does lash out quite aggressively when people don't side with him. So I think most people are just avoiding that. What do you conclude from the fact that the president's popular vote total grew by six million from one election to the next? I think uh, voters um, make decisions on who they want to vote for based on a whole host of reasons. Uh, I think President Trump did a very good job of muddying the waters and constantly saying all the news that's against me is fake news. I think he's confused people about what's fact and what's fiction. And so if somebody likes who he is or likes his message for any given reason, they're going to stand by him. Um, I think President Trump has really damaged our institutions and damaged our democracy in a way that is um, really unforgivable and something that is going to be with us for a very long time. But hopefully people will begin to listen to their neighbors and talk to people about what they care about and r restore what's been lost in terms of our confidence in our media, our confidence in facts as, as a set of facts that are real. Uh, and hopefully others don't follow President Trump's lead in terms of distortion of facts. Did that shock you and should it shock Democrats or shock them into a way of thinking about the potency of his political movement differently or how you either approach policy or messaging differently? Well, I think this country needs a lot of healing and I think we need a lot of listening. And so, you know, I, I listened to a lot of the reporting over the last week and one interview really stuck with me. It was a woman um, in, I think she was in Georgia um, and she voted for Trump, 
but she really liked Joe Biden's speech that he just gave because he cited Ecclesiastes. And in Joe's speech where he talked about there's a time to be born, a time to die, you know, that very beautiful lyrical passage that we read often at funerals, um, she thought that as a man of God that he would understand her better and that he would be able to understand that um, everything's not so black and white. And so I thought that was interesting. And also I felt inspired by that because this woman, while she voted for President Trump, she was open to what Joe Biden was gonna be able to offer her in terms of leading this country. And so I do think we need to listen, find the common ground and build from there. We all love our children. We all care about the economy and a better job. We all wanna earn our way into the middle class. And so if we're focused on healthcare and the economy and jobs and better schools, those are the areas of common ground that we can govern on. And I hope that all Democrats understand that our responsibility is to represent everyone well. And that means listening and finding shared values. So part of the human condition is expectations. It feeds heavily into politics. The expectations, at least among Democrats, were that Joe Biden would win and Senate Democrats would take the majority. That is, as you just indicated, a hard fight ahead and by no means certain. Does that mean the progressive agenda that was being imagined has to be shelved? And Not at all. Okay. I think, I think the common ground on the progressive agenda is this. Everybody believes healthcare is a right and not a privilege. And so I think Joe Biden's ideas of opening up Medicare for younger people than 65 is important. I'd like to get it down to 50. Um, right now, Joe's at 60. That's a great start. So I would like to advocate for opening up a not-for-profit public option through Medicare, ultimately for anyone. But if we can start with uh, people who are soon to retire, that's a great place to start. Uh, I think people uniformly want better jobs. And given this recession, we need much more job training. Uh, Joe Biden wants to have a health force. I have written legislation with Michael Bennett and others to create that health force. So we have hundreds of thousands of people who are now trained to do the contact tracing, the testing, and eventually vaccinations to augment the role of the CDC and um, the ability to get into all the states to help provide this. So healthcare is a universal issue uh, and access, especially during a pandemic. And then improving our schools. Um, I, I really believe that um, we need to teach more STEM, which is important for green jobs, which is important for how we address global climate change. So you can keep a very progressive agenda, but boil it down to the essential elements of where we agree, healthcare, education, jobs, and you can build it from there. Uh, and, and that's how you can work with someone from West Virginia or from Alabama just as easily as you can work with someone from New York. The voice of Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Come back for segment four in just a second. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Of course, I'm working from home. You recognize the dining room. It's a familiar place. I just want to point out that it is a great privilege of mine to do this work as I do it from home. I know many of you can't. I know many of you are frontline workers, either in hospitals, you are first responders, 
You are people who are delivering food or delivering other goods and services in our country. And I appreciate you and all the work you do. And I learned while I was up in New York covering the election at CBS election headquarters, the value of something that the senator talked about just a few moments ago, which is rapid testing. The company I work for had rapid testing every single day. And anyone who doesn't have that is being deprived of an essential component of their very existence right now. And everything that it seems to me at our federal level should be devoted to creating that reality for people who have to work every day in a place of exposure, as I did for two and a half weeks. Only two and a half weeks of my eight, year, eight months experience with COVID has been in a situation where it was an absolute necessity that I have rapid testing every day. And I had it. And that's a great privilege. And if you don't have it, you deserve it. And it seems to me at the federal, state and local level, that ought to be a universal bipartisan priority in this country to get rapid testing for those who have to work so they can work with confidence and their families don't have to live in fear. That's just my own little editorial. Senator, if you want to add or subtract from that, go right ahead. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we need rapid testing. Staff are being asked to come work in Congress and they don't have access to testing at all. Um, just, you know, in the last couple of months, Congress got access. Anyone who's an essential worker needs access to testing. Anyone who's going back to work for any amount of time needs access to rapid testing. It's absurd. And this is one of the biggest failures of Donald Trump. He refused to create uh, a pipeline for manufacturing to guarantee that we could have the reagents and swabs and rapid test kits here in America being produced quickly and aggressively so it's available for kids to go back to school. I mean, why are we asking public schools to open that don't have rapid testing? You're just putting children, families, and teachers in harm's way because you don't have the basic tools of guaranteeing a baseline of a COVID-free envi environment. We should have it. And the fact that we don't is going to make our recovery slower. And there are certain corporations that have the wherewithal to do it. I'm fortunate enough to work for one of them. But though, for those who don't, they're put in a place of stress and exposure that just seems to me to be not a way to deal with this pandemic and not a way to deal with their basic human safety and dignity. Again, uh, that's my little soapbox, but it's my show, so I get to stand on it. Um, I'm going to tell you this, Senator, and it won't come as a surprise. Those who heard your last answer about linking STEM education to the future of dealing with climate change would say, yes, but boy, that sounds like a long way around the block. Uh, that doesn't sound like Green New Deal. It doesn't even sound like half a Green New Deal. Isn't there something that can be contemplated, fought for in this next legislative session that is definable on climate change in terms of renewables or anything else? Oh, all of it. So the Green New Deal, and let me break it down for you because it's actually not a new idea. It's just packaged in a new way. So the Green New Deal has three major components. Uh, first is jobs in the economy. So it wants to um, create renewable energy sources, transition from fossil fuels to renewables. That's investing in wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, biofuels, which we can do, and that's popular in all states. Um, you don't need a workforce for that. So that's why you need the STEM education and the work of community colleges and state schools to teach how to create solar panels, how to create wind turbines, how to install energy efficient appliances in every home, how to have LED certified building materials. So your economic STEM training is to provide the workers to do the green renewables. I'd like to put a price on carbon so that the uh, private sector can help us get there. Because if you tell a polluter, yeah, you're gonna pollute, you're gonna have to pay a lot more money. That's a huge incentive for boards and investors to invest in green energy and efficiency so they don't have to pay a massive tax because they're a polluter. 
Um, second, you have to clean up the air and water that's already been harmed. So brownfields is something I've been working on for 10 years. It's popular in Democrat and Republican areas. Everybody wants resources to clean up uh, waste sites, to clean up air and water in the communities. When I was campaigning for president, we had problems with TSC, TSE, P PFOA, and every kind of contaminant in every state I was in. So everybody cares about right. clean water. So that's the air and water quality and the money to clean it up. Um, and then last, uh, you basically have to um, create incentives to make energy efficiency something that everybody invests on, in. So for example, give tax benefits so people are willing to put solar panels on their houses or put wind turbines in their farms. Um, actually create tax incentives for these investments so that everyone, so you have basically energy entrepreneurs. Um, this is how you get to all of the ideas under the Green New Deal is pieces of legislation that are specific, targeted, and bipartisan. And there's probably 50 different pieces of legislation that have already been written that are already bipartisan that are part of the Green New Deal. Does a Biden administration leading with infrastructure get That's 50, 60, 80, 90 percent there? Yeah, because if you, let's say you're going to put- I mean, leading with it. I mean, that's like the first thing out. The first thing you do is infrastructure and say, we're going to have a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, which would be a great place to start. New York State alone, we have $70 billion of unmet sewer needs. We have over 2,000 bridges that are structurally need work. Um, we could absorb endless amounts of money for infrastructure, which would guarantee clean air, clean water, and energy efficiency. If he puts the, the infrastructure lens on we're going to build back better and everything's going to be built back green, that's how you put enormous amounts of resources into this transition to a Green New Deal economy. So it's all about the jobs you're creating, how you're re rebuilding, and infrastructure can be the first step, which is probably the most bipartisan part of the Green New Deal. So with your indulgence, Senator, let me ask you to go through a thought experiment. Uh, you're writing in your diary about uh, the 2020 election, and you say, Dear Diary, on the defund the police message, Democrats did what? So um, the challenge was, is they didn't explain it. So people put their own definition into that phrase. But what we should have said- That would is, be a screw up then. Well, no, it just couldn't be understood by all voters everywhere. Cause it was, it's, it's a label. It's not, it's not an expression of a full idea. And what the idea is certainly to me, and I think to those who talked about it, is to define public safety more broadly. So define public safety more broadly isn't a bumper sticker in the way defund the police is. But that's what we mean, certainly what I mean. And when you define public safety differently, it means you can actually invest in having uh, social workers, having mental health professionals be part of public safety. So when your son is having a mental episode and happens to have a knife and you want to call an ambulance and a mental health professional and a social worker who knows how to deal with that mental illness that's who shows up, not a police force that kills your son. That is the difference. And so where the common ground is that red states and purple states and blue states can agree on, let's define public safety more broadly and let's, let's invest in professionals who can help with mental health, with homelessness, with all these other um, issues, individuals who haven't had access to medicine because of mental illness. So much of death, particularly of black Americans, black male Americans is because we don't define public safety broad enough. And those incidents that we need someone who's knowledgeable and trained to deal with someone having a mental health episode or someone who hasn't access to medicine or someone who's homeless could be different. And so 
it's just, it's always the problem with bumper stickers is that they're not complete thoughts. And so people can assign anything to them, even though the purpose and the goal is something that is universal. That is the voice of New York Senator Democrat Kirsten Gillibrand. She's been our special guest this week for our radio audience. We have to say farewell. But for the podcast audience and CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome back. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York is our guest. She's got a son to pick up. I am respectful of that. So I've got three questions for you. Then you can walk out on me. Favorite movie, most influential book, favorite music. Mm. Well, um, I like comedies. So I'm going to put in my favorite movie, Talladega Nights. (laughs) First loser. That's who second place is. The first loser. Yeah, exactly. And I like to you do my grace to the baby Jesus. So it's one of my favorites. Um, second, um, most influential book. Well, the Bible, without a doubt, I go to two Bible studies a week. And so I like the Bible. Um, and then the third one, is there any, is there any book that you would say helped you in life outside the Bible? Well, I like C.S. Lewis, for example. Mm-hmm. He writes really good. Um, Screw tape letters would be one of my favorites. Christianity, all good. But I also loved, um, Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, every voice matters type book uh, or trilogy. It's uh, even the little people count. <laughs> <laughs> Liter- <laughs> Genuinely little people count. <laughs> yes. It's like, even if you're the most marginalized, you still have a role to play. So I love that message. Um, I really do. Uh, and then music. music, you know, do I have a favorite? I don't think so. I, I have to say. Do you have a genre I, that you really like that if you're going to indulge? Well, I love alternative music is my favorite genre, but the album that I'm enjoying the most right mm-hmm. now is the new Taylor Swift album. And even though some people may say, oh, she's a pop artist, the new album is excellent. It's very mellow. I really like it. So, so we had a Zoom gremlin. I didn't hear the artist or the album. What is it again? Oh, the new Taylor Swift album. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I think I've heard of Taylor Swift. Yes. I think I'm aware of her. Yes. But there's just, you know, I'm a mom. I like calming music and that album has a lot. It's called Folklore. Uh, I like that new album. I've been listening to that one a bunch. Um, but I don't I don't really have a favorite, I don't think. I don't think I could. Well, I like you... Matt Rogers a lot, The Heard It in a Past Life. That's a really good one. And you have a favorite who's waiting for you to pick him up. So Larry, he's my 12-year-old. I have to go. Go, go pick up your 12-year-old. Please tell him we said hello. Thanks for your time. You. We'll see you on Capitol Hill. Yeah, God bless. Take care, everybody. Be well. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.